Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Had come together, they asked him, that's referring to the, the apostles, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Oh God, we pray by your spirit, open our hearts and our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So who are we? What are we called to do? I'm going to conduct this sermon by asking three questions, and then we'll answer these questions from this passage that we've just read. The first question is this, what are we called to do as the church of Jesus Christ? So this passage begins at verse 6. The disciples are coming to Jesus, they've come together, and they have a question. And they ask this, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. So you can see in the disciples' mind the kingdom is first and foremost. Now that's that's right. That's good. You might remember that I said a couple of times that the chief theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. If we want to say in the simplest terms what is the Bible about? It's about the kingdom of God. And so the disciples get that and they have a question about the kingdom, but um, their mistake is that they have a wrong conception of the kingdom. Here's how I would define the kingdom, and I've defined it this way before in this sermon series. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. The disciples here, as they're thinking about the kingdom, their problem is that their conception of the kingdom is much too narrow because you notice what they say, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they have a national political conception of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a narrow consideration. All they're thinking about is Israel. They're not thinking about any other nation. They're not thinking about the rest of the world. They're just in a kind of tunnel vision focused in on the future of Israel. And so Jesus responds to the disciples with kind of a correction to their question. So he says in verse 7, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, So there are certain things that we can't know about the timing of God's kingdom. These are fixed by the Father, and we have to proceed in faith and wait for those to unfold according to his timing. But then in verse 8, Jesus goes on to say this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, that would have rung true with them. And in all Judea. Okay, maybe true. And in Samaria, now the disciples are saying, what? And to the end of the earth. This is the kingdom that 
Jesus has in mind. Not something related specifically to Israel, but a kingdom that is to spread throughout the whole earth. And the identity of the disciples and all Christians in that effort is that we are witnesses to this reality. This is your identity, your fundamental identity as a believer in Jesus and a member of the church. You are witnesses to the gospel. Wherever you go and wherever you are, you're exercising at the Y, you're teaching at Ball State, you're at home with your kids, you're walking down the street in your neighborhood, you're at the Muncie Mall, you're watching a basketball game at the field house. Wherever you are, you are a witness all the time. Now, what do I mean by witness? A very simple definition of a witness. It's to know something and testify to it. That's a witness. I witnessed a car accident a couple years ago on Jackson and White River. And after witnessing the car accident, I pulled over and waited for the police because I knew that they would want to talk to me because I was a witness. I saw something and therefore I had knowledge of something that many others didn't. And so I could speak to it in a way that others couldn't. I was a witness. And that's what you and I are. We're, we're witnesses. We testify to what we know. We know something. Something has been revealed to us as Christians that not everybody knows. That is that we are created by a great and almighty and holy God. That we are accountable to him. We are his creatures. That because of our sin, we have fallen under his wrath and condemnation and are without hope in this world except that God in his love and his mercy decided to send a savior and came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and lived the lives that we should have lived but haven't lived and won't be able to live. And then he goes to a cross, he dies there, he pays the penalty for sins, he's resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and now calls on all the world to repent of their sins and place faith in this Savior. That's the gospel. That's what's been revealed to us. That's what we know. And that's what we're witnesses for in this world. That's probably the most concise description of who we are. Witnesses. And where is it that we witness? Verse 8 goes on to tell us. To what extent are we these witnesses? Well, we're witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's like witnesses in Muncie, in Yorktown, in our city. We're witnesses in all Judea, in Samaria, in, in the state of Indiana, the Midwest, the United States. And to the end of the earth, to Japan, and Mexico, and Iceland, and Scotland, and Australia, and China, and Russia, and the Ukraine, in all of these places throughout the world. We are sent and called to be witnesses. We're on mission, friends. That's a description of our identity. We're all, to some degree, missionaries in this world. Here's what Michael Goheen says. Continuing the mission of Jesus is not just one more task given to his disciple community, you know, on top of a bunch of other responsibilities. Rather, it defines its very identity and function in God's ongoing story. We're witnesses. And there's something very interesting going on here in terms of a transition from the Old to the New Testament. Mission in the Old Testament was largely um, centripetal. And by that I mean coming in toward the center. The center being Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament, 
the whole concept of mission is that the nations will come to Jerusalem. They will stream to Jerusalem. They will come to the people of God, spinning in toward the center of Jerusalem. You know, Acts chapter 1 is taking place in Jerusalem. In fact, in verse 4, Jesus told the disciples, stay in Jerusalem. That's significant. They're in Jerusalem, and now we're transitioning into the New Testament, and now the mission changes. Now it's centrifugal, spinning away from the center, outward, starting in Jerusalem, and then moving out into the world, into Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and all the ends of the earth. So we are witnesses now who are being sent out into the world. Now, I know that that can begin to send off some warning bells in people's minds as we think about being witnesses because that can be kind of nerve-wracking for a lot of reasons, particularly when we think that we're out there on our own by ourselves being witnesses. But see, the good news, friends, is that this task, this charge given by Jesus is not given to us as isolated individuals. It's given to the church this is something that we do as a community. We are witnesses together. It's not like we all leave here and we go off and do our own thing and keep it to ourselves. We do this as a community of faith. There's great comfort in that. Not all of us are gifted in the same ways. Not all of us can do the same things. So we witness as a community. So it, here's how this Works. If I can just give you an ideal picture of the way it, it, it should work. You're, you're out in the world, okay? You're, you're at the Y. You're in your school. You're at Ball State. You're in your neighborhood. And you meet somebody, and you kind of start to get to know this person, and a relationship is beginning to, to blossom. <clears throat> and so, you know, wh wh where should that go? You're a witness in that situation. You're a friend, you're a neighbor, you're a citizen, all those things are true, but you're, as a Christian, you are a witness, and now here you are with this person that you know and that you've met, that God has sent into your life. What do you do? Now, you could give that person the gospel, that, that's true. You could look for the right time to do that, and it might be appropriate to do that. Another thing you could do is say, hey, why don't you come to church with me on one Sunday morning? And let's say this person, let's just say he's a man, he agrees to do that. So you bring him to church. He comes in the doors of this church, and somebody steps forward and greets him with a warm handshake and a warm smile. And maybe he hasn't had anybody reach out to him like that and be so friendly. Makes a positive impression on him. He starts to talk to some people. He finds out there's a basketball tournament going on here on January 18. He's a basketball fan. That, that piques his interest. He didn't know that Christians play basketball. So he, he's, he's kind of interested. He thinks, I might come. I might come to that. Um, he, he's here with his children. He's, his wife isn't there, but he's here with his children. And so he says, well, what, what do I do with my children? They're probably too young to come in the worship service. Well, here, I'll take you to the nursery. He goes to the nursery. And there's warm, friendly people there who say, we're going to take good care of your children while you go to this worship service. And they take these kids in and, and care for them. And so the guy comes in, and he comes into this worship service. He's among God's people. The Spirit of God is at work here. He hears the word proclaimed. He hears the gospel proclaimed. Maybe for the first time. Maybe he's never heard this ever in his life. He's interested. He's listening. After the service, we talk to him, and we learn why his wife is not there. It's because she's been ill for a long time. She can't come to church, and he's really been struggling to <clears throat> get meals ready. And so... We say, you know what, we got a meal ministry here. 
And we get him in touch with the meal ministry. In our meal ministry, a number of people in the congregation rise to the occasion and make meals and take it to this guy. He's never been cared for like this. He's never had anybody express an interest in him like this. He wants to know more. He wants to know how he can get more connected. So we say, well, we have life groups, these small groups that meet. We send him to a life group. There's 10 or 12, 15 people. He starts to get to know people. Discussion goes on. Questions are rising in his mind about things that he's heard about Christians and what they believe and what the Bible says. He asks these questions and people in the life group, they say, you know, I had that question once too and here's the answer that I've heard and it's been a good answer. And they start answering his questions. And he decides to come back next week. And this goes on week after week after week. And eventually he says, I want to be a Christian because I've been cared for by a community of witnesses who testified to what they knew about Jesus and who extended care to me that I don't find in the world. That's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> You're not a witness all by yourself. Don't be nervous about that. We're witnesses together, and that is fundamental to our identity as God's people. <clears throat> Next question. Where do we get the power to be witnesses? Because again, a lot of us feel very insecure about being a witness. We don't always know if we have the right thing to say. We are maybe not as acquainted with the Bible as we should be. We're concerned we're going to get a question that's too hard for us. We're maybe more reserved and shy by personality. And so it terrifies us to think about how we can be a witness. So where do we get power and strength to do this? And the answer is through the Holy Spirit of the living God. And that's what Jesus promises in verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power from this Holy Spirit. Remember, these disciples and apostles are largely unlearned people. And yet what Jesus is saying is when the Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. It's not a power rooted in their intelligence or their cleverness or their persuasiveness or their personality. It's a power that's rooted in the Holy Spirit. So we've been seeing this story unfolding in Route 66. God the Father in the Old Testament largely is who we've been considering. The promise of a Messiah. Jesus comes. We've learned about him in the Gospels. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And now we have this special transition where we see the Holy Spirit now, the third person of the Trinity, is beginning to be put forward in the biblical story. Now the Spirit is going to play this more significant role, and the Spirit will uh, do this on the day of Pentecost. So that will be coming up in chapter 2. We're not going to get to that today. But Pentecost is what was prophesied in the book of Joel, you might remember, when we were in Joel a couple months ago, fulfilled in the giving of the Spirit described for us in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is poured out. So if you're a Christian, the Spirit lives in you. The power of the Spirit lives in you if you are a Christian. That's the promise of Pentecost. But what does the Holy Spirit in particular enable his people to do? And If you look at the verse, it's clear, right? I mean, I've already said it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. So the Spirit power is given so that you can be a witness. What is a witness? To testify to what you know. 
You know something, you testify to it. You're nervous about that. I understand. I am too. I'm a pastor and I get, I get nervous about that. I'm on vacation sometimes and a conversation might turn to a spiritual conversation. I got to admit, sometimes I get a little bit nervous. It's like, what am I supposed to say here? I'm on vacation. I'm not supposed to be doing this right now. <laughs> but I'm a witness, whether I'm a pastor or on, whether I'm here or whether I'm on vacation, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a witness. And, and you're the same way. You're, you're always a witness. And it's understandable that nervousness, but what this is telling us is that the Spirit is given to give us the power to testify to what we know, to speak up. I mean, the Spirit does a lot of things, but in the book of Acts, what you see over and over again is the Spirit empowers people to speak. Look what it says here in Acts 4. When they had prayed, <clears throat> this is, um, this is the, the apostles and their friends, it says. It's not just the apostles. When they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What did that enable them to do? To continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Not just to speak it, but to speak it boldly. This is what it is to be witnesses. This is what the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do, to open our mouths. And what happens when we do this? Throughout the book of Acts, you'll see this repeatedly. And there's a theme here that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're being told that when God's people as witnesses speak forth the gospel, people believe and become Christians. Watch this repeated theme, Acts 2.41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word went out. 3,000 people became Christians. Acts 4, many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men who came, uh, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Acts 6, 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. As the word goes forth, Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still saying these things, speaking the word, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Acts 13, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Do you see the common element here? People speaking, the word going forth, the Holy Spirit joining with the word, and people coming to believe become Christians. Let's not miss this. Uh, you know, I might be stating the obvious here, but when we invite people into our community, we're not just inviting people to come and play basketball. We're not just inviting people to come because we want to bless the, the city. We're not just asking people to come and, and learn in a lecture hall. What, what we're calling on people to do as his witnesses is to turn away from their atheism and their agnosticism and their secularism and their moralism and their conservatism and their liberalism and their Buddhism and their Islam and whatever it is that they hold to that is not in accord with the biblical, biblical gospel. We're calling on them to turn away from that and believe in Jesus and be saved. We're, we're trying to convert people. 
Now, that, that's kind of uncomfortable today to say that. You know, we're not supposed to seek to convert or to proselytize. That's what it is to be a witness, though. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. The word is going forth, and people are being converted. As an example of this <clears throat> happened years ago, 10 years ago or so, it was, um, maybe you remember this, but Britt Hume, who's a, a news correspondent, <clears throat> was commenting on a situation going on with Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods' marriage was kind of falling apart at the time. And, um, and Britt Hume was commenting on this, and, and Tiger Woods apparently professes to be a Buddhist. And Britt Hume said on TV, he said, Buddhism does not offer the same kind of forgiveness as Christianity. And what Tiger Woods needs to do is turn from his Buddhism to the Christian faith so that he might make a total recovery. That's what he said publicly on TV. I mean, those are the kinds of things you, you don't hear very often. And, of course, he received some, some negative resistance to that. But that's what the Holy Spirit empowers his witnesses to do. Now, there are right times and wrong times to say this. I understand that. There are relationships that need to be built. I understand that as well. Not all of us are gifted as evangelists like everybody else. Some of us are better than others. That's all true. But in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit empowering his people to witness. What are we saying when we're calling people to abandon their atheism or Buddhism? Are we saying it's because we're better people than them? No. And that's what people hear a lot. That they hear us saying we're better than you. We're not better than them. In many cases, we're worse than them, quite frankly. We're not saying we're better than them. What we're saying is we have a better Savior than them. We have a Savior who is the King of kings, a Savior who dies for his enemies, a Savior who offers forgiveness to any who would come and just receive it by faith. It's that simple. It's a loving, gracious God who wants to save sinners. That's the one we're proclaiming. It's a Savior unlike any other that is proclaimed in any other religion. And John Stott proclaims it this way. He says, power in God's kingdom is different from power in human kingdoms. It's spread by witnesses, not by soldiers, through the gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, and not by force of arms. So listen, friends, as you testify to, to the gospel the success of that doesn't depend on how smart you are and how clever you are and how persuasive you are and how charismatic you are. <laughs> it depends on the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit loves to convert sinners to faith in Jesus. One last point here, one last question. When will we know that we're done with this task of being witnesses? Well, in verses 9 to 11 we see two very major doctrines being presented here. Verses 9, verse 9 is the ascension. So look, it says, When he had said these things, Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is called the ascension. When we did the Apostles' Creed a moment ago, we, we confess this, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus came from heaven into this earth. That's Christmas. But after his resurrection, he ascended and went back to heaven. In his resurrected, glorious, physical body, he went back to the right hand of the Father, enthroned as king, master of the universe, interceding 
for us all. That's what's happening in Jesus' ascension, told us here to us here in verse 9. But another important doctrine is in verse 11. The end of verse 11, these angels here, we'll talk about them in a second. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So these angels are saying Jesus has just ascended and one day he's going to come back in a very similar and same way. And when he comes back, he's coming to judge the world, to purge the earth of evil, and to vindicate his people. And so in between those two events, the ascension and Jesus' second coming, there's a huge span of time. It's gone on 2,000 years now. And that time is to be a time in which God's people, the church, are preoccupied with this task of being witnesses. We are engaged in this task until Jesus comes again. We don't know when that's going to be, right? Verse 7, it's not for you to know. The time that the Father is fixed could be tomorrow. It could be in another 2,000 years. It could be 10,000 years. We have no idea. But the point here is that until that happens, we need to continue being witnesses and not grow weary and not give up. And we see this in kind of a humorous way in verses 10 and 11. Because it says, after the ascension, as Jesus goes up into the clouds, verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, so the disciples are standing there looking up, as anybody would if a guy lifts up off the ground and goes into the heavens. They're looking into the heavens, and these two men show up, two angels, and basically they say this in the starting of verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words... What, what, are you, what are you doing just standing there? Uh, what, what are you looking at? <laughs> Get busy is the implication. You can stand there and look into the heavens as long as you want. He is coming back, but you're looking into the heavens isn't going to bring him back. And until he does come back at a time that's been fixed by the Father, get busy, disciples. Get to work. Don't just sit there and gaze into the sky. There's work to be done on earth there are people who need to hear the gospel. There are nations that are unreached with the gospel. There are churches that need to be planted. And until Jesus comes again, we have work to do, my friends. And you know, we might ask, why is it that Jesus is taking so long to come back? Leslie Newbigin says this, what has been done for the world must be made known to the world so that the whole world might be brought under obedience to the gospel. And it is for this that the end is held back. Jesus is not coming back because in his mercy he's giving us time to be his witnesses throughout the whole earth. You know, you may have an experience where you've been a witness to somebody and you've prayed for somebody and you've seen somebody come to faith, a good friend, maybe a, a husband or a wife or a child or an uncle or something, and you're rejoicing in that. This person has come to faith. But you're not done. There's other people in your life who need your witness. We as a church, we by God's grace have, have planted a church, City Hope Fellowship. Praise God, we're grateful for that. But we're not done. We don't say, hey, we did our part. Let's sit back and rest and look into heaven and gaze into the stars waiting for Jesus to come back. No. Stop looking into heaven and get busy and being witnesses. So there are, are many 
many names we should, I should note as I conclude here, there are many names that could be used to describe us as, as Christians. So I don't want there to be a misunderstanding here. It's not like witnesses is the only thing that we are. I mean, I, I get that. The Bible says we're, we're sons and daughters of the king. We're children of God. That's, that's huge. The Bible says we're, we're sinners, but we're also saints. You are a saint. That's how the Bible describes you. Even though you're a sinner, you're holy by faith. You're an heir of eternal life, one standing to inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You're a new creature in Christ. The scriptures on and on use a number of different words to describe who we are, but I think it's significant that here in the book of Acts, chapter 1, right on the cusp of the giving of the Holy Spirit, this key passage as the story of the growth of the church is given to us that in this key place, the word that Jesus chooses to use to describe us is witnesses. You're a witness. How will that affect the way you live in your neighborhood and the way you do your job and the way you relate to your family, the way you talk when you're with family over the Christmas holidays and New Year's holidays? You're a witness in every place that you go. So testify as God allows to what you know until Jesus returns when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have chosen us for such an honored and exciting and blessed task to be your witnesses. Thank you. Fill us with your spirit to open our mouths and build your church on earth. In Jesus' name we pray.